Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we have a whole bunch of fun things planned. It is a duet. So you're stuck with Tim and Charlie. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom lecha. And since Andy is not here, as, as we always, which is our new tradition, when Andy is not here, we read a quote in his honor. And so we're going to go back to The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertayange, which as a passing note, I do share some of these quotes before lectures in my class. And I think that that's actually going really well. Yeah. Like we talked about what is an intellectual vocation. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, like the IRS looks at you and they give you a huge tax break because you're a full-time student. Yeah, that should means you should be full-time should, studenting. You should act like you're a full-time student. And we, we had a little discussion about that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really good. But anyway, so here's the quote. It's on page six. Under the heading, The Intellectual Has a Sacred Call. I love this quote. Page six. Quote, The jingling bells of publicity tempt only frivolous minds. Ambition offends eternal truth by subordinating truth to itself. By subordinating truth to itself. So in other words... Subordinating truth to publicity and to ambition means certain truths you're not going to communicate because it will hurt your ambition and your publicity. Isn't that what he's saying? It's basically Ernest Pickering's old adage Hmm. from our institution. You either limit the message or you limit the, uh, what is it, limiting the, the message or you limit the Oh, I forgot it. Fellowship. Or, fellowship. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Mm-hmm. A limited fellowship or a limited message. I took it the other, like kind of in a, which I think you're, you're right. Like if you try, they're in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. Being famous is in opposition to truth. Yeah. Because you, uh, you will compromise things to mm-hmm. be famous. And what you will compromise is the truth itself. The truth itself. But uh, I, I didn't, I didn't get to that thought. I just was like. Your, your ambition uh, makes it, it puts itself as what is important instead of the truth itself. Instead of truth, which yeah. is just pride. Yeah. And so, but the reason I love that quote, there's no no qualms here. The reason that I like that quote was the jingling bells. <laughs> that that phrase got me. And again, he didn't write this in English. So some translator somewhere. Which okay, this is well, translated he may have. He translated may have. by Mary Ryan, but I mean it wouldn't. Yeah, he he, he may he, have. He would have said something about bells that made noise. Jingle bells, jingle yeah. bells. So that, that's why I thought of. I was like, <laughs> I'm thinking about Christmas music, and anyway, let's sing a duet, Charlie. Let's. You know, there have been times where we've done musical things yeah, at the beginning not. of podcasts. Let's not. Yeah, let's not. Do that. <laughs> And uh, anyway, there's our quote of the week uh, of the of the podcast. Not yeah, sounded like Whew. words are fun. Anyway, 
So there's our Andy quote from Sertayange, and we have some listener interaction to do. Yes. So um, Charity Nordstrom wrote in, well, actually, yeah, no, it was Charity. Charity wrote in uh, a few weeks ago, Andy mentioned um, reading through the Ranger's Apprentice series while his son was reading through it. And uh, there were some, um, what, profanities or some words at least that he didn't want his son to be exposed to, and he was kind of blocking those out. And we talked about the romantic themes that also appear in The Ranger's Apprentice. Uh, And so Charity wrote in commenting about how she's been reading Song of Songs for Singles and listening to our podcast. Uh, And so she was just wondering about these romantic themes in children's literature. So uh, I'm going to just read what she says here. To begin, I know that the Thinklings have spoken highly of the Wingfeather Saga and the Green Ember series, but you haven't addressed the romantic themes within those books. In the Wingfeather books, all three children develop a relationship with someone of the opposite gender, which leaves the reader assuming there is romantic interest. And then she goes on and talks about Green Ember, which I'm not going to get into because I've only read the first book of Green Ember. So I can't really interact with Green Ember, but I have read all of Wingfeather, and I've also watched the animated series of Wingfeather, and I want to talk about how I've talked to, talked to my children uh, about these themes, because these themes are everywhere. It's not just in the world, it's in the uh, Christian literature as well. Uh, and when our children are reading books like Wingfeather, it's like 10 to 12 year olds. The marketing age of Wingfeather is 8 to 12-year-olds. And, and so are these romantic themes stirring up and awakening love in our 8 to 12-year-olds, creating in them a desire for some kind of a relationship like Janner and Sarah have? Uh, so it's a very legitimate question. It's something that I've thought through. And I, but, but I want to continue to encourage my child to read. Uh, at the same time, pretty much all literature seems to have these romantic themes. So how do you handle this? Well, first of all, I want to talk about Wingfeather. I personally didn't think that the romantic themes in Wingfeather were prominent. One, the one character turns into... I don't want to spoil things, but anyway. Careful. Yeah. Just, it's just, he's clear, that character is clearly not going to be uh, interested in an individual. He's, he's overcome by... Other desires. Yes. Yeah, that's that a good way to put it. That are not necessarily romantic. Romantic or human. <laughs> okay. So they're, or human. <laughs> Does he become a trousered ape? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're horrendous. Okay. And then um, the, the romantic interest of uh, the main character, Janner. Uh, the the girl w- with whom he has a romantic interest with, I mean, they it's extremely muted. I I thought it was extremely muted. They're like not together at all, um, and so it kind of hints that there's something there. But then how the entire book series resolves, there's obviously nothing there. So I personally liked how Wingfeather the romantic themes were significantly muted, way more than a lot of. Uh, even Christian literature that's geared towards 8 to 12-year-olds. So with that, they then have created an animated series. And in the animated series, they totally change the plot line. And they make a the romantic interest between Sarah, or Janner and Sarah, like the, uh, the driving motivation uh, for Janner, which I hated. 
Like I hated it because it's changed it from being a loyalty. Like I am going to be faithful to my position, to my brother, to my family, Mm -hmm. to a, so I'm going to do what's right because I'm going to be faithful to my brother, to my family or whatever. And obedience sometimes to his mother. Like a lot of times he doesn't even want to be watching over his brother, but he's doing it because his mom said so. I mean, think about the virtue that the book is highlighting. But then in the animated series, he's now wanting to what fight the bad guys because of a romantic interest. And I'm like, ah, I like that really goaded me. I talked to my kids about it. And that gets into what I what I want to highlight as far as how do we handle this with say our children. You talk to them. And and I well, we we watched the animated series. I'm like, look at what they did to the story. They totally changed it. My kids got it too. And I'm like, look at how much worse it is. And and so we discussed that. Um, and I'll just use another illustration. Uh, we watched the Karate Kid, you know, nineteen what eighties, nineties Karate Kid movie, like the Mr. Miyagi, yeah, wax Mr. On, Miyagi, wax, off. wax on, wax off, yeah, yeah. Um, that show. Okay, and I don't remember. I remember watching it as a kid, thinking, "Oh, this is pretty clean," and it was pretty clean. But there's a significant romantic interest. Yes, there is in that movie, which I totally had forgotten about. And and so at the end, you know, I kind of talked to my kids about it and I don't know how this all happened or whatever, but they had evidently, I think they got the Karate Kid part two and they had watched part two before they watched part one <laughs> and I didn't know about it. And, uh, and, and they said, oh yeah, he doesn't even have that girlfriend in the second one. Like something happened. <laughs> I'm like, exactly. And think about all of the pain that happened between those two movies that the movie they just completely cut all that out and so my kids have heard me talk about awakening love and song eight uh, six and seven like i don't know more times than anyway a lot and so um they could almost explain to me you know for me um what was wrong and so that's the goal so if they can read it and then see through it, then I don't have a problem with them reading it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or even watching some of it. Um, but you, but you have to train their affections and guide and direct them through that. And with them being so inundated in our culture with it, you remind them about it every once in a while, uh, as well. And with my poor children, you know, pray for my children. I speak on the Song of Songs on a regular basis. People ask us to come and speak on it. And um, what was my daughter reciting like song one, two the other day? It's like, okay, let's focus on John 3.16. (laughs) (laughs) So um, good times in the little household. Uh, But great question. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of guidance on dealing with that issue. What do you got? Yeah, and and so I I think that there is a difference between an adult or older child who would read through, I haven't read the Green Ember series, so I have read um, Wing Feather, and I have listened to Wing Feather. So I've gone through a couple different iterations. And so I do think that the interpretation of Jan or Sarah is is uh, biased for someone who's older, because you're expecting like, well, of course they're going to get together. And I think you can kind of pick that theme out. But they don't. But they don't, <laughs> which I'll get to that in a moment. I don't, I don't know like, if, if I had an eight to 10 year old boy and I was, I want you to read this. I just don't see them being like, oh baby, here we go. Like they're going to, they're going to get married. Like I just, I don't know 
if they would just pick that up. Now, of course, they could be, uh, I'll use a word, because I am, I am listening back through the space trilogy, so I'll use a word that's appropriate there. They could be conditioned that way. Mm-hmm. To like every time they see a guy and a girl interact, like, well, of course they're dating and going right. to get married. But I, I don't think a, an eight-year-old with a genuine innocence to reading and you're training their affections is going to just grab that and run with it. But if they do, I actually like the way the book sets it up. Because if you do start really wanting that to happen, what happen- mm-hmm. What eventually happens- Is that it doesn't work out. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And the so way- So then what does that teach the kid? Well, and that was my next point. Okay. Is I actually think that, I think Janner does have an affection for that girl, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other things he has much more appropriate affection for. Right, that's That good. he demonstrates often. Right. That he loves his family and that he wants to serve and honor his position, mm-hmm. which say no more there. If you've never read it, don't give anything away. But he he does- want he has other virtues in mind mm-hmm. other than just finding the girl he likes and proving himself to the girl he like uh, yeah. and in and a lot of the second and third book there is not a lot of his motivation detailed in the book yeah that is tied to that girl right and so i actually i think i don't know if it was intentionally done that way to mm-hmm. diminish the role of romance right but the way that the story unfolds that's not in his mind when he makes some of the biggest sacrifices that he makes. Mm-hmm. He's thinking of people in general, people that have been hurt or, uh, I don't want to use the word marginalized, but people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. When he tries to serve suffering people, he's not, I'm doing this because I have fallen in love with this girl. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm going to do this to prove my mm-hmm. valor to her. That's not even on his mind. Right. He's... um yeah, in a very in a very real sense, he's serving his family and the the higher power mm-hmm. at be in the book there, and so yeah, I, I I don't think that they overdo it at all. Okay, they they undersell it, and I think a very appropriate way. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I have not seen listener. You have to you know I have not seen the animated mm-hmm. series because Tim started watching it, and he's like, Charlie, don't waste your time. You're not gonna <laughs> like it. So I didn't. I didn't listen. Didn't watch it. One uh, one more thing that I just thought of, um, like when they are reading lots of it, just think through, you know, because uh, some kids, they just can read a ton and think through how that could be affecting them because they're getting that romantic interest all the time. Mm. And so um, it may be something you need to bring up on a semi-regular basis. And even it may be say, hey, you know what? We're going to take a break from reading fiction and get them reading, you know, up the ante. So with one of our children, that's what's going on. It's like, hey, you can, you've read a lot of fiction. You're a good reader now. It's time to move out of the fiction category. Let's read some nonfiction. Go to the space trilogy. No. That's not fiction. No. That's real. No. Oh, okay. All right. What do we have next? <laughs> uh, well... If I'm not going to go down a digression about the Space Trilogy, <laughs> the next thing is we have that thing we always do. Books and business. Let's talk about a book, Tim. All right. So I have Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield uh, was just a pastor's wife, really not a major individual. Nobody really knew about her. And then she published a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. This was back in like 2012, I think, somewhere in there. Uh, Then there was an expanded edition that was released a little while later. Oh, I have it right here. 2014. No, that's the expanded edition. Expanded edition came out in 2014. 
Anyway, um, and in this story, she, or in this book, Seeger Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she basically tells her story how she was a, a lesbian professor at Syracuse University and how God, uh, in his mercy, uh, brought a pastor into her life. And she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. So, I mean, she was entrenched in LGBTQ queer theology and everything. And, and God, God brought this um, pastor into her life. And over the course of like two years or something, she uh, abandoned that lifestyle and uh, trusted in Christ as her personal savior. Um, and in Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she tells this story. It was, I think her book was, was very uh, uh, influential in um, the evangelical Christian world. I think that would be a good summary of it. Uh, the publisher was Crown and Covenant, which is basically a no-name Reformed press in Pennsylvania, uh, and they had never had a bestseller in their lives. And and then this thing just kind of took off and went crazy. We sold a bunch of them in the bookstore. I just checked my inventory, and we're really low right now, so I'll get another bunch ordered. But um, we really, I would encourage you to read this book. This isn't the book that I'm highlighting. I'm just trying to tell you, uh, I'm kind of, giving you a little bit of background uh, to uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She's since written a couple of other books. The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which we have talked about on this podcast. I would recommend that book as well. Uh, and then now she's written a brand new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, uh, just released like a couple of weeks ago. So why do I think you should read uh, some of uh, Rosaria Butterfield's books? Well, she has really helped us understand the LGBTQ um, movement better. And also, uh, she, because of her life situation and everything, has illustrated how um, you can accept a person, um, but you don't have to agree with their sin. And how our world has kind of confused those two issues. And she's going to talk about that a little bit in Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age as well. So um, she's also helped us to understand the foundation of belief in the conversion of somebody who is LGBTQ+. So I want to just read a little bit from Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, she writes, I didn't understand why homosexuality was a sin, why something in the particular manifestation of same-gender love was wrong in itself. But I did know that pride was a sin, so I decided to start there. As I began to pray and repent, I wondered, could pride be the root of all my sins? And that was a fascinating beginning point to her conversion. A lot of times when we look at LGBTQ movement and everything, we just see the LGBTQ uh, plus stuff. But she's like, I don't see a problem there. But there was a problem with pride, uh, which also is fascinating considering the movement's, um, what, their, their uh, motto. It's like they're the movement of pride. Pride. Yeah. yeah. Pride month, pride this, pride that. And so she identified that pride was a sin. And so then she continues writing in her book, we read in Ezekiel 16, 48 to 50, that the root of homosexuality is also the root of a myriad of other sins. First, we find pride. Why pride? Pride is the root of all sin. Pride puffs one up with a false sense of independence. Proud people always feel that they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want to. And this is something that 
uh, various different counselors have noted within the LGBTQ movement, there is a strong pride connected to the individuals that have um, believed in that in that system. So I want to just kind of throw that out there. It was very helpful for me to think through, hey, you know what, I'm really dealing with a surface issue when you're looking at LGBTQ issues. But the foundational issue that she kind of identified was pride. And the second area where she was really helpful, uh, and this is in another book of hers called Openness Unhindered. This one, this book didn't register with me as well. I didn't, I didn't find it as clear, but she does have some really good points. Um, and this is one, one quote on page 25, um, where she helped me to understand the, uh, what's true and what's real. And we tend to conflate those two. Well, what is, what is real is what's true and what's true is what's real. And so, um, I'm going to read a quote from Openness Unhindered. I still felt like a lesbian in my body and heart. That was, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity? So do you see what she just did there? She made a distinction between what she felt was real, but what was actually true. And she made a distinction between what felt real, but what was actually true. So now I'm going to continue to read. The Bible makes clear that the real and the true have a troubled relationship on this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, and with dreams and hopes and plans. What is bigger, my lesbian identity and the feminist and postmodern worldview that fuels it, or God's authority over me and holy sovereignty over the world. Indeed, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. So this distinction between what's true and what's real, and what she had to come to, the, the conclusion that she had to come to is that what feels to be what feels real is not true. And she needed to simply believe. She had to believe what was true, even though it didn't feel true. So that was uh, just a couple of quotes from her two other books. And now I hope that kind of sets you up a little bit for what she's doing in uh, The Five Lies of Our uh, Anti-Christian Age. If you had something, I know I saw you leafing around your Bible there. If you had something you wanted to pop in with, you just let me know, Charlie. Well, I think, I think, not. I don't have any scripture to throw in, but... I like the distinction she made too. And rec- like, we're not even denying the reality of the emotion she has. Right. Like, she's like, no, these are real. Like, right. I, I do feel this way. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I think that's objective. Like, she mm-hmm. feels this way. Yes. And it's very strong. Yes. And, but that, that is the key to then realizing my emotions are real. Right. But they may or may not be true. <laughs> It gets to uh, Proverbs chapter four and the heart desires, okay? Um, Out of the heart come the issues of life. So you need to be careful what you're putting into your heart. The heart is deceptive. And so you need to be careful, you know, Jeremiah 17. And, And so there are scripture passages that would support what she's saying and how we can't trust our heart. That's essentially what she is saying. But the way she said it, I think really kind of helps. Yeah. Uh, a modern Christian 
or even a, a modern individual try to navigate what they're feeling in their in their what emotions, but what the Bible actually says is true. Well, and even you know a famous passage that discusses homosexuality and those desires and how they progress, and just note the connection of that to truth in Romans chapter one. Yes, exactly. So for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what to the truth? Suppress it. Suppress it. And that's a spring that they're, they're holding down, like they're pressing it down. And then just a few verses later, after he has discussed uh, in the context, men and women exchanging the natural use of the other gender for homosexual attraction, says this in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Mm -hmm. And so a very clear conflict between what's true and what we feel, certainly there, mm -hmm. even though the word you know emotions or affections isn't used, but right. that's the discussion that Rosaria is highlighting for. Yeah. Yep. So in Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, um, I'm going to get to the five lies, but in the preface, she directs that the book is primarily written to women, uh, young married women, Christian women uh, specifically, um, because our, our, our young women and our, our just, our Christian women, uh, these are lies that they are tempted to believe. So um, that is the primary audience of the book. Uh, and then she comments, this book is for those who know that marriage between a man and a woman is sacred and cannot be modified to appeal to cultural whims. And so what are the five lies? They are cultural whims, essentially, that she is interacting with. That she is interacting with. We are of no good to God or our loved ones if we believe the lies the culture feeds us about what it means to be a man or a woman. So she's basically saying, listen, you can't believe these cultural lies uh, um, uh, concerning uh, gender fluidity. And that's one, one of the things that she's going to talk about. And then this statement she knows is going to tick a lot of people off, but she says it anyway, and that I do appreciate her for. She states, God created men and women in marriage to do different and complementary things. Husbands lead, protect, and provide, and wives submit, nurture, and keep the home. Then she states at the beginning of the next paragraph, because Satan would like you to think that my previous sentence is conspiratorial hate speech, Strong Christian women need to know what the Bible says on this matter rather than what some famous almost Christian feminist blogger says on Twitter. Oof. Ouch. <laughs> Let me read that again. What some famous almost Christian feminist blogger says on Twitter. Only like, bells ring in there, the knockout bells at the end of the round. Maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much truth to that. You know, people don't know their Bibles and our, our wives need to know their Bibles. That's really yeah. what it comes down to. And well, anyway, so she kind of uh, uh, zings them pretty good there. Uh, then she writes, finally, for those women who have loved ones lost for now and held in the grips of our nation's reigning idol, a formidable monolith represented by the letters LGBTQ and the symbol plus. Listen, this book intends to arm you with God's words of courage, comfort, and boldness so that you may pray without ceasing. My prayer is that you will stay indestructibly 
connected to your loved one without falling victim to the indoctrination that has bewitched her. And that's pretty strong language. Mm. The person that has fallen victim to LGBTQ plus ideology is bewitched. Then she states, if bewitched seems like a strong word, listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Innovations to the gospel are more accurately understood as false teaching. Nothing good comes from this. Boldness. Doing well. I know, like I really like Rosaria, um, and she, she is, she is. Uh, anyway, something that I would really recommend that um, I don't know. You could follow what she's writing. There's some things I disagree with her about. You know, like everybody, she's reformed, and so <laughs> blah blah blah. Anyway, what are the lies? Just the uh, the reformed asterisk that we put on, yeah, like exactly. 90 percent of the people we talk about. Exactly. Okay, so uh, lie number one: homosexuality is normal. So once you're gay, you're always gay. And she talks about intersexuality. Lie number two, okay? Uh, Being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Okay, what was your quote talking about? Limiting truth. Okay, so we don't want to communicate that truth. Why? Because it's not... Kind. Kind. It's like, well, what's really kind? You know, this is something for us to think about as Christians. Paul doesn't, well, what does Paul ask that the Philippians and whoever, they pray for him? Pray that I would have boldness. See, we have this tendency, particularly in our culture, to, to, to just be quiet or to be, quote unquote, kind. Now, being bold doesn't mean to be a jerk. All right. Um, but, and, and I thought she caveated that nice in, in that preface, that section that I read earlier. Okay. Anyway, lie number three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Okay. Ouch. Okay. Feminism is good for the world and the church. Now I've heard people say, you know, feminism has really done some good things for the church because it's made them rethink um, uh, femininity and what the Bible has to say about femininity. And I'm like, really? Should we give them that? I don't think we should give them that. <laughs> no. Okay. Feminism is not good for the church. Uh, and, and we need to identify the lie that feminism teaches. And we need, we need our wives and our women uh, to, to speak against it. Okay. And then lie number four, transgenderism is normal. Um, and in that she has a chapter on the war of words which I'm interested in. I haven't, I haven't read through this yet. Then line number five kind of surprised me. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. Ooh. Yeah, so not many, um, not many Christian writers will, will step into the world of modesty. It's come up in a couple of our Song of Songs discussions. In fact, when I was at our regular Baptist camp last summer, we had a Q&A at the end of one of the sessions. It was not recorded. I did not want it recorded. I was surprised how many people brought up the topic of modesty. And they were concerned about their daughters being imprisoned by some standard and this law-based system of... of uh, 
of uh, communicating like what what is modest or not modest and blah blah blah. So anyway, she like goes there, uh, and then uh, the chapter fourteen, which I really want to get into, exhibitionism, the new almost Christian virtue. Oof. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to getting into this book, and I wanted to throw it out there right now. It just came out. If you mentioned that you heard it on the podcast, you want to pick up a copy at the Faith Bookstore, uh, just mention that you heard it on the podcast and tell them I'd give you a 33% discount on it. It's kind of pricey. It's like $20 or $30, so you'll get it for about $20 and uh, pick up a copy. I would strongly recommend reading it. Yeah, Books and business. That sounds, uh, I know this is one of my buzzwords. What am I about to say? Spicy. That sounds spicy. And uh, I mean, some of the things that, like most most of the Christians in our circles are going to be, yeah, we know homosexuality is not normal. Mm -hmm. We know transgender is not normal. But then to get into like, feminism is just all bad. Yeah. And then yeah. modesty, like she <laughs> modesty, touched, yeah. she touched modesty was like, uh, um, you know, a throw out of left field or whatever, you know, whatever right field. I can't remember. We had the whole issue with sure. what field does it come out of, but, um, you know, I didn't see that one coming at all because that has not been her, uh, area of expertise, uh, but it is something that my wife and I, I have a lot of books on modesty and my yeah. wife and I have talked about it and I want my wife to put together something on the topic, um, uh, that hasn't happened yet, but it'll happen uh, eventually. So it is a big issue within our Christian circles as well. Yeah. And uh, as you were kind of talking there, I'll I'll segue another verse into the final thought we're going to have in God's word. But as you were talking, you know, the lies that we buy into mm-hmm. and they, you know, the, the verse that came to mind, uh, so this is Ephesians 4, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Lies, mm-hmm. lies that our culture's screaming at us. Yes, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead of that, we speak the truth in love, and may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. And so, yeah, that's that's one of the verses that popped in my mind there. But mm. that's not going to be our final thought. I bookmarked it so I could get there really quickly. So I'm going to be just bluntly, brutally honest. I was reading through a passage, preparing for a devotional. And I think I actually mentioned this on the podcast. We had like an outreach event where we had some men come to our church and we knew it's it's intended to be evangelistic. And the, the verses that I was kind of led to is Romans 5, like 1 through 11, where, you know, being justified by faith, you know, we've, we've been reconciled to God. So it's just a beautiful, succinct statement. We are declared righteous because we believed, and it's nothing that we did. And then he goes into it a little bit farther in the heart of that, where when we were without strength, at the perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. And uh, try to just play off of the theme of, you know, men like to be strong, and men like to have it all figured out. We don't like to be 
week. Mm-hmm. And here is an area where we are absolutely helpless. Yep. And that was kind of the idea we went with. But I was just reading around that passage. And right after it, um, there's these verses. And so this is verse 12. I'm going to read 12 and 13. Uh, we might throw 14 in there too. So <laughs> Romans, Romans 5, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, and he's just got done sharing this beautiful idea of the gospel. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And then if you're, I'm reading in a New King James, I think ESV does it too. Then there's a parenthesis. Mm-hmm. So he like stops his thought. Just as through one man sin came and death came and everyone sinned because everyone was dead. Parentheses. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And that parenthesis will continue through the end of verse 17. Just to be honest with you, I was reading, and I got to verse 13, and I was like, what in the world does that mean? It's been a while since I've studied sin and imputation of sin, and I read verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So, what does that phrase mean? And just kind of went down the, the wormhole, the rabbit trail on, what does that phrase mean? And so the point that he's making is it's certainly regard to, in regard to sin. And he's clearly said that we're all in the boat of sin. Like we're all sinners. And if you want to start reading about you know, how we're all sinners, there's a lot of really famous discussions. And uh, Calvin and Luther and Augustine all had views on original sin which is, so in what way does Adam's first sin then affect the rest of us as his descendants? And then, you know, in what sense are we counted guilty, even though we weren't technically there, but we were kind of there because Adam's the, the first human. And that's, that's kind of what Paul is discussing, and he just throws out this idea. And you've th- got to think it through historically, in a sense that Adam is created with Eve, and they fall into sin. And they really had one command. Don't eat from the tree, the knowledge Mm. of good and evil. Mm -hmm. One command. Then you fast forward, and I'm not a history Old Testament buff, but how many years do you fast forward and you get to Mount Sinai, where now we've got hundreds of laws. And a really famous Israelite, Abraham, is right in the middle of that. He's after Adam, so we know he's a sinner, but he didn't have the law. And there's these really famous passages in the Old Testament that are quoted, by the way, in Romans 4, about how God looked at Abraham and counted him righteous. Why? Why? Because he believed. Mm -hmm. He had believed the promise of God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So he's righteous not on the basis of law-keeping, but he's righteous on the basis of belief. And so Paul is kind of batting these ideas around, and he points out the fact that Abraham's righteousness couldn't be from law-keeping because the Sinaitic or Mosaic law hadn't even been given. 
But he does want to prove that everyone is condemned. And so what does he then point out here? The, the, the point of verse 13 is that even without a law to condemn you, so it's, you know, if there was no speeding law, you'd never get pulled over for speeding because speeding doesn't exist. And if there was no laws against theft, you could never be condemned for being a thief if there's no law against stealing. So it's, you're not going to be counted sinful or wrong for doing something that doesn't exist. Paul's point is that your sin has nothing to do with the law that you broke. It's that sin is reigning in human lives without the law. And that goes back to the end of verse 12. If it's not the law that makes us all sinners, it's not we didn't have a law to impute sin to us, where does our sinfulness come from? And it goes back to that last phrase of verse 12. So by one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we're not going to get into that little phrase, but it's a prepositional clause, and there's about 12 different ways that main commentaries or historical theologians have taken that. And there, you know, there's arguments that abound on either side. Here's the point. Regardless of how you specifically parse out that little prepositional phrase, it's an epi uh, phrase, epi is the preposition, what it clearly communicates is that every human is tied to the mess that Adam made. Somehow. And I like, this is uh, one of my favorite commentators' names, Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo. And his Romans commentary says this, He is saying that Adam's sin involved us all in a situation of sin and death from which there is no escape. Mm -hmm. How did it involve us? Well, all sinned. Everyone somehow in Adam all committed a sin, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't all of us breaking a law because we didn't have that law. Mm -hmm. And verse 14, even if it's a transgression that's different, If we sin in ways that are different than Adam, which by the way, all of our sin is different than Adam's sin because we don't have any trees of life floating around today, right? Knowledge of good and evil. Well, sure. That's the one they ate of. Thank you. Yeah. Tree of life isn't the one he, he could have eaten from that, which is why he got kicked out. Anyway. So yeah, the knowledge of good and evil, we don't have that in our neighborhood and God hasn't commanded Christians, hey, don't eat from that tree. So our transgressions today are different than Adam's. Mm -hmm. So we're not sinning the same sin, but the point is you're all, we are all bound in sin because in some way Adam involved us all. We are all involved in that situation as his descendant being in him is what the the phrase is taken as. And so there's no escape from that. Mm. There's no hope. Like, You didn't have a law, you don't have the one command Adam had, and you're all, because he fell, you're all in him, and everyone is caught in the situation of sin with no escape. Other than those who are in Christ, which I think is the beauty of this passage. So I think the point of verse 13 is that the power of sin didn't need law to condemn you. That when Adam fell, we all fell without a law. And 
without that law, nevertheless, death reigned, sin reigned from Adam to Moses. The whole time from Adam to the giving of the law, the law, sin didn't need a law to kill people. It had power over every one of them. And so we're in this uh, situation of sin and death from Adam. There's no escape other than in Christ. And that's the other half of verse 12 that gets completed down in verse 18. He goes on this long tangent about sin, really wants to make the point that we're all bound in sin. But I think he's trying to be careful to really spell out how we are bound in sin without making any heretical statements. I think that's what he's doing in 14 through 17. But so you're really, to get the full sense of verse 12, need to get down to verse 18, where he, I think in verse 18, succinctly then restates what he was trying to say in verse 12. Therefore, as through one man's offense, and that's almost the same thing he said at the beginning of verse 12, through one man's offense, judgment comes to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the gift comes to all men, resulting in justification of life. And we could keep reading, and he really emphasizes the, the one. There's one act over here, the beginning of time, and there's one act of Christ, and they're completely different. One man's disobedience means disobedience for all. One man's obedience means life for all. But anyway, so the meditation I have there, as I was reading that through, I was like, what does that mean? That death reigned from Adam to Moses. What does it mean that sin is not imputed where there is no law? It's highlighting our sinful condition and that regardless of whether we're under the law of God as a standard of living, or we don't even have a law, sin is powerful and controls us either way. Hmm. And because of that sin and its power, we are powerless to get out of it. There's nothing a man could do. And he, he does share that in some of those verses that the law, in fact, doesn't produce any righteousness. It makes people worse. It magnifies their sin, makes it so abundantly clear that we are hopeless. Hmm except for the one man's obedience. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I don't know, Tim, but it just, it's just such a blessing. Why would he die for us? Mm -hmm. And it's, it, has, it makes no earthly sense mm -hmm. other than he loves us and he is perfectly holy and benevolent to his creatures. creatures. Yep. And uh, anyway, that's, the meditation I've been kind of having there in Romans 5, that uh, regardless of <laughs> whatever legal code I try to live by, I am hopelessly bound to sin mm -hmm. in Adam. And uh, I am very thankful for the obedience of the Messiah, Christ, who does obey the law, does die on the cross, and offers eternal life to me, uh, not by works, not by effort but by belief. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to, uh, to have and to hold the gospel. Amen. And so I hope that, you know, how, how does that encourage someone to know that they're a sinner? Well, <laughs> you can't really have the good news if you don't understand that bad news. Yeah, that's you right. You really need him. You got to know the bad news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think even as a Christian, it's great to be reminded of 
the depths of our sin, uh, regardless of how righteous we may think we are. Mm-hmm. And so hope that the gospel and or that aspect of the gospel is a blessing to you as our listeners. And uh, any closing thoughts, Tim? Are we ready to wrap her up here? We pray that you have worshiped the Lord with us as we went through Romans chapter 5, remembering Christ's sacrifice on the cross that paid for your sin. Nothing you could do. We worship the Lord. That's the application. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Thinklings podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.